0: So imagine for a moment that you and uh, your whole family have been living in the same area for 400 years. Your parents and grandparents and your great-grandparents and all the way back have told you stories about how your God provided for you in that area by giving you the best of the land of Egypt and that you were able to grow crops Uh, You were able to raise animals, Uh, you were able to live uh, beside these streams of water that flowed out from the Nile River before emptying out into the sea. And every year, like clockwork, they would flood and it would cover your fields with all the fertilizer and all the water that it needed. And you were basically living in abundance and and you were with a people that were flourishing and, and prospering. And then all of a sudden there's a political change. And the people that used to give you free access to everything so that you could do really well financially and and raise your families in a comfortable way, all of a sudden they're turning against you. And and all of a sudden uh, they begin taking away your liberties just one at a time. And then before you know it, you've got no freedoms at all. And, And now they're beginning to force you to work for them. And as things get progressively worse, not only do you have to work for them, uh, but they're actually taking away all of your rights, and you become their property. You become their slaves. And they begin working you into the ground. But yet, because God is with you, your people keep prospering. And, and so they begin to ratchet things up a little bit, and, and they tell the people who are responsible for delivering the babies in your town to actually kill the male children uh, when they're born. And when that doesn't work, they actually tell the people who are living around you that they are to be responsible to join in on this. And if they find a male child of your people, that they are to throw him into the Nile. And then, in the midst of this terrible situation where you're beginning to lose everything that for hundreds of years had been the the very fabric, the basis for your existence— out of nowhere, this guy comes out of the wilderness who used to be in that political regime. He, he used to be one of, one of them. He's an insider. In fact, for 40 years, he was raised as one of the children of Pharaoh himself. I mean, this guy was as Egyptian as it gets. This is a guy who uh, knows the language not only of the Hebrew people, but also of the Egyptian people. He's, he's a guy who could read, who could write. He was strained up in political uh, knowledge. He had, he had uh, a military strategy that he was instructed in. Now, this is a guy who, if you were to look at him, had everything that you would need in a, in a human political savior, and he shows up, and he says, I'm one of you. In fact, I am one of you. I'm a Hebrew, and I've got a plan for delivering you out of this place. And you have no natural recourse except to believe Him, because He's everything you were hoping for. I mean, He is the promised one. And so you get called in by Pharaoh, and he tells you that as a consequence of all of this talk about somehow liberating these people that Pharaoh owns, He is going to actually make your labor even harder. He's going to make your trials even more severe. He's going to strip you of even what little liberty remained. And essentially, because of the way it's all sorted out here in terms of the work, He is going to work you to death. So if you're a man, this is how you're hearing it, is that my prospects going forward is basically to be worked to death. And as a result, you now look at this Savior, this guy Moses, And you realize that He has actually made things a lot worse for you, not better. And in fact, while you're still doubting Him, God does these miraculous works through Him, and one by one, God shows up to actually do something that is so visible and so dramatic that everybody understands what He's doing. He is systematically, one by one, picking off the gods of the Egyptians. And He is bringing plagues and curses onto the land— that prove that he is the God of that land. And if you were growing up in those days, you would understand what this meant because your understanding of the gods went like this. There were lots and lots of different gods and all those gods had a particular plot of land that they were responsible for. And if you were to move on to their land, you had to do what they expected in order for them to stay in a a good relationship with you. And out of nowhere, this God comes along who says, I own all the land. And by the way, my direct context is not so much with a land, but with a people. I've even got my own people. That was, that was radically different. Gods didn't have people. But now you've got a God who's got a people and a God who is invisible. And that is the God that not only does this massive work in the nation of Egypt, but then he also brings his people out. And he says, I want you to come with your flocks, with your herds, with your belongings. You're even going to take all the silver and gold from your neighbors, and we're going to get out of here. And you begin to migrate southeast. You come out of that fertile area of Goshen where everything flooded, everything grew, everything was green and prosperous. Think palm trees everywhere. And you begin to move south. And it's kind of like when you walk off the resort in Palm Springs and into one of the lots next door. And there's just nothing. There's some scrub brush and snakes. And it's so hot that you can feel it. It burns your eyes just to look around. You can't even take your sandals off because the ground is so hot, it just burns your feet. And more and more, they're, they're migrating into that kind of territory, no food, no water, and they find themselves under a very garrison of the Egyptian army. They're looking down on them from a watchtower, and the only thing opposite them is the Red Sea, and all of a sudden, Pharaoh changes his mind. He releases 600 of his most finely trained warriors on chariots, plus all the other chariots he had in inventory, and they head down to destroy you and bring you back. And this incredible event is occurring, and right before they're able to actually overwhelm you, God himself shows up in this pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, and he positions himself between you and the Egyptian army. He opens up the Red Sea so that you can walk across it on dry land. And as the sun comes up after your walk through the night, you look back and the Egyptians realize what have happened. They're moving towards you. There's a cloud of dust behind their chariots, And as you finally, the last of you, the stragglers, the slow ones, the old ones, the young ones, the crippled ones, finally crawl up out of the banks of what was the Red Sea, you look back over it, and God begins to collapse it from behind. The army goes into a panic. They can't go left. They can't go right. They turn around. They're going into a wall of water. And before you know it, you watch thousands of people perish in front of your eyes. And it all of a sudden goes still and there's nothing but what little remains of them there was floating on top of the water. At this point, God tells you to turn and keep walking, and you move into the desert. You're traumatized. I mean, you've moved from your homeland. You've moved away from everything that you knew was prosperous. And you've come out of the hands of your oppressor only to go into a wilderness and see God wipe them off the face of the earth by drowning them in the sea. Your mind is filled with all sorts of events and the the chaos of it all, and you can't really process it. And he moves you into a place where there's no food, no water, and by a miracle, he brings up quail in the evening. In the morning, he puts this dew that turns into sort of a flaky bread called manna in the morning, and he gives you water from the most unexpected sources. Well, at this point, we've come through the first several chapters of Exodus, At this point, we have seen that God is the great deliverer, that God is the great redeemer. But now, this rescued and liberated and delivered but traumatized people are together in the desert, in the wilderness, and they're right up against something called Mount Sinai. And they're in the southern part of the peninsula of modern-day Egypt, and they are wondering what God has next for them. Because he's called them in together here, and they sense that he is about to move again. Now, up until this point, he's provided for them. They have food. They have water. Uh, It's now probably mid-July. It's the hottest time of the year, and what we see beginning in chapter 19 is the next phase in the unfolding of this amazing book of Exodus. The first message we looked at we called deliverance the second one was redemption and now here we are at the third today from chapter 19 through 24 and we're going to call that covenant so if you have your bibles open up to exodus chapter 19 and here we're going to meet our people again and the main argument of this text is that Yahweh relates to his people through a just and compassionate covenant god relates to his people through a just compassionate covenant. He's going to do something that was not uncommon in those days in terms of a relationship between a deity and people, but he is going to do it in a way that it's never been done before. It's been three months since you left Sinai. Oh, it's been three months since you left Egypt. You're now at Mount Sinai, and it is, at this moment, the darkest night of Of the entire month. Exodus 19 verse 1 opens that on the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came in to the wilderness of Sinai. The new moon was the non-moon. The new moon is the opposite of the full moon. The new moon is when you look up in the sky and there is no moon, and the stars don't really provide very much light. And so into this, the darkest of nights, the people arrive at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, now just to give you some maybe geographic uh, context here, uh, when they use the word mountain, it's not necessarily what you and I might think of as a mountain. I mean, it's, it's not a gigantic mountain. Uh, it's really more of a hill. And it comes out of the ground dramatically. There's sand, and then out of nowhere, there's this rock cropping. And so that's why it's easy for us to make the distinction between what's the ground and, and what's the mountain. And they come up right up against this great rock. And just for context sake, as we said, it is the darkest day of the month. And as they set out from Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped there in the wilderness, there Israel encamped before the mountain. And something amazing begins to happen. Moses, their leader, rises up, and he goes on to hear from Yahweh what the next phase of their journey is going to be like. And so this morning, what uh, I would like to show you once again is covenant, and we're going to look at this as the covenant at Sinai, the covenant on stone, and the covenant in society. So just outline, break it down that way. So the covenant at Sinai, the covenant on stone, and the covenant in society. Now, again, we're not going to be able to read every single verse, but we're going to give you the highlights and hopefully the understanding of it so we can see how this relates even to our new covenant understanding. God is the one who initiates the covenant. Beginning in verse 3, when Moses goes up to God, it is Yahweh who calls to him out of the mountain and says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, Nothing like this has ever happened before. Here's Yahweh, the the God who is not manifest in any kind of idol, and any kind of likeness. The God who speaks, and you can't tell where the voice is coming from, says to Moses that I'm going to enter into a covenant with my people, and because I own all of the earth, I'm going to make them a literal kingdom of priests upon the earth and they will minister, and they will worship me, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so Moses, once again, takes up his role as mediator, and from verse 7 down through 15, he goes back and forth between Yahweh and the people, and he delivers to them the message from God, and he reports back to God the response of the people. You see, in those days, it was Moses who was set apart to do this work. God speaks to Moses, Moses speaks to the people. The people speak to Moses, Moses speaks to God. That's what a mediator was. He was a go between. And again, he wasn't some impartial third party. He was able to represent the people to God and God to the people. But as we're going to see, God was not interested in expanding that relationship very much at this time. In fact, if you look at verse 16, He says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Brothers and sisters, it's mid-July. There were no clouds in Egypt. It is the time and the season when it was as dry as can be, averaging over 100 degrees in the middle of the day. They were there at the base of the mountain and supernaturally... Apart from any normal phenomenon, this mountain, this hill, was suddenly surrounded by a cloud way lower than it would normally be, and this cloud was not just a cloud, but it was a cloud that was then inhabited with the thunder and the lightning. And, and though maybe to us we think it's a little bit dramatic to say that the people were terrified and trembled simply at some thunder and lightning, but just use your imagination for a moment. Put yourself in a situation where what's going around you in terms of the, uh, the forces of nature are, are so loud and so overwhelming and so terrifying that you are literally wondering if you're going to survive it. Because what's going on on that hill, what's going on on that mountain is not normal. It's like nothing you've ever seen before, and you're having the distinct impression that this is not going to go well for you. <laughs> That, that this God who led you so gently as it were through the wilderness and through the Red Sea and by pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, now all of a sudden seems to be a God who has ignited himself on the top of this hill. And Moses goes back and forth between you and God and he says, whatever you do, don't get anywhere near this mountain. Don't come near this outcropping of stone. Don't let your animals go near it. And if you go near it or your animals go near it, We're not even going to come close to you to kill you with our bare hands. We're going to throw stones at you or we're going to shoot you with an arrow because we don't even want to get near you because we don't want the wrath of God falling on us. This was not exactly a seeker-sensitive approach to ministry. (laughs) This was meant to make you realize that there was a very significant gap between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of His people. And so Moses, verse 17, brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand, trembling at the foot of the mountain. In this case, we see a separation. The people are held back. The animals are held back. Only Moses is invited up, and then later on, Moses and Aaron, the two men from the tribe of Levi, the two who would later become the priests of the people, And Moses goes up to hear from the Lord and then goes down to speak to the people. This is the covenant at Sinai. On that mountain, God made a promise to make Israel his people, to make Israel his children. Now we get to what is probably the most famous part of the book of Exodus, and that is what we know of as the Ten Commandments. Now, this is what we'll call the covenant on stone. I'm borrowing some of this from the later accounts in chapter 31, but you understand how this goes. God is now entering into a written contract, a written covenant with his people. He says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. And now, and this was very customary in the day, he being the one in supreme position of authority and power, the one who is the benevolent giver of the covenant, tells them how exactly that relationship is going to work. And what he does is he issues forth his precepts. And he does this following the pattern of how the ancient kings in those days would enter into contracts with their people. If you've got maps in the back of your Bible, uh, this would be an opportunity uh, for you to use them because how often do you hear somebody in a sermon say, now turn to maps, but if you did to turn to maps, you don't have to if you don't have one, but here's the thing. If you look at the, the map that we usually talk about where Abraham came from, you'll, you'll see it's broken down this way. In the, in the northeastern section, there's an area called Mesopotamia. It's two Greek words. It just means between rivers. You had the Tigris and the Euphrates. You had Ur all the way to the east, and then to the west you had Haran. That was an area called Mesopotamia. That's where the, um, oh, I don't know, the Babylonians were and the Assyrians were. And then, if your eye travels kind of west and south, you get down to Egypt. And Egypt was the other superpower. So down in the southwest, you had Egypt. In the northeast, you had Mesopotamia. And right in between, uh, there was this area called Canaan. Now, this is the area that God said, I'm going to give to you as my people. Uh, But during the time when Abraham was around, it really wasn't much of a a land. I mean, it was a a, a pass-through area. It was like the flyover states. Except in this case, you walked through it, and it was relatively important because it became a trade route between these two superpowers of Mesopotamia and Egypt. And I bring all that up because it was in that region where these super powerful kings would make arrangements with these little petty rulers that they set up to manage provinces in Canaan. And they would enter into a contract with them. And the contract would begin with this prologue, and they would say, I'm king so-and-so, and then there would be this preamble that says, I am the one who will give you protection, and I'm going to give you this land grant, and then it would go into the stipulations, and therefore, you're going to do this for me, and this for me, and this for me, and then they would call witnesses, and then they would write it down, and they would make sure that there was a copy for you, and a copy for them, and they would make sure that at least once a year, everyone came out and read it to make sure that they knew what the responsibilities were to each other. The king was responsible for giving you military protection, and you were responsible for paying him tribute. That's how the deal worked. So, this was not uncommon. And so, when this occurs on Mount Sinai, not that God needs some cultural context to mimic, but he borrows from that cultural awareness and says, I'm entering into a covenant with you in a similar way, not identical, but a similar way. And that's why when we get to chapter 20 and what we'll call the covenant on stone, it begins like this. This is the preamble. This is the prologue. It says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God. What have I done? I have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He identifies himself. He is the one who is the superior. He is the king. And he is voluntarily entering into a covenant with these people into an agreement between him and them. This is benevolent. It's gracious. He doesn't have to do it. He is volunteering to do it. And isn't it amazing, just as a side note, but so important, that it was after he led them out of the hands of Egypt, after he's led them out Of the wilderness that would kill them, after he's led them through the Red Sea that was a barrier they thought would lead to their death, after he led them out from under the watchful eye of the Egyptian army, after he did all of those things for them, then he tells them what his expectations are. You see, his his grace came first, and then his law. But his law is good. Everything we're gonna look at this morning is good. Psalm 119 is a whole psalm dedicated to the goodness of the law. Psalm 19 is a beautiful account of the goodness of the law. King David says, I dwell on your law all night, and it's good for me to think about it. I love your law. So don't think about law as just purely restriction. Law is the way that God reveals himself to his people and reveals his very character. Why is it important for Christians to still understand and know the law of God? Not because we are subject to it the way that the Israelites were in the specific ways, be it the civil and ceremonial laws, but because it reveals the heart of God. It's his nature. It's his character. You see what he's like in the laws that he gives. And and we're going to see this happen, not only in the law that he's going to give later on stone, but even in the way that that plays out in everyday life. But for the sake of time, let's go back and take a look at this after he has identified himself, after he's reminded them of what he's done, he then goes in to give him these ten words, you shall have no other gods before me. And literally, you will have no other god before my face. In a polytheistic world where everybody believed in God, but not just God, gods. Everybody believed in all kinds of gods. And they believed that everywhere you went, there was a different God that ruled over that territory or ruled over that uh, force of nature or ruled over those animals or that river or that sun or that moon or that wind. They believed gods were everywhere. And God, our God, the one true living God, Yahweh God says to his people, there will be no other gods but me. That alone marks them out as a peculiar, bizarre people. <laughs> to have only one God? And then, if things weren't strange enough, he says this in the second commandment, that you will have no graven image. You will not make for yourself any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath the earth, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He says, you're not going to have any graven images. You're not going to be allowed to take God and make a pocket-sized version of him to carry around. You're not going to be allowed to take the invisible God and make him visible. Not only that, but you're also not going to be allowed to take anything else that you fear and make it into a symbol that you can bow down and worship and try to appease. You're going to be set apart and different as my people, God says, because you of all the peoples of all the nations in all of the world at that time are a people without idols. Now he goes on to the next one, and that is that because of the nature of his glory and because of the revelation of his own name as the personal name Yahweh that he revealed here to to Moses, that he said, I didn't even reveal this to Abraham, he says in the third commandment, you shall take not the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain. For Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now this is not just that one must not say the name God in a flippant way. I believe it is absolutely at least that but it is much more. It's very common today to hear people using God's name flippantly. Just spend any time around out in the world or frankly anywhere, I'm afraid, these days, and people are are, are flippantly using God's name, but it's even more than that because here name also represents everything that he is. Remember, he he says to Moses that I'm going to tell you my, my name, who I am. It's his glory. It's his person. It's, a, it's attributing to him something that's not his. It's borrowing his glory, as it were, and, and applying it to something that doesn't meet his standard. And he says, you're not allowed to use my name. You're not allowed to say I'm doing something when I'm not doing it. You're not allowed to call me into something to make me a part of it. I will decide when I get involved. I will decide when my name is put on display. I will decide what I put my signature to And that is not for you to decide. So you don't use my name in vain. And then the fourth, and these really comprise the ones most specifically focused on how one responds to God himself, and that is the Sabbath day. He says, remember that Sabbath day, that seventh day, to keep it sanctified, to keep it set apart. Six days you will labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, is to Yahweh your God. On it you will do no work, Not you, your son, your daughter, your servant, your female servant, your livestock, your sojourner, who is within your gates. Do you get the idea here? This is comprehensive. Even your animals got a Sabbath rest. For in the six days, Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. It's very interesting uh, to go back to the Genesis account at the very beginning and to see which days the Lord blessed and how, or which groups He blessed and how, and the fact that of all the days, only the Sabbath day is the day that was blessed. The one that was set apart as the, the culmination of creation, that sanctified day that they were to honor. It meant that you rested on that day. Your servants rested, your animals rested, and even the sojourner. You realize that when the uh, Israelites came out of Egypt, they didn't come out alone. They didn't come out just as Israelites. There was a mixed multitude, the Scripture says. It's the word Arab in Hebrew. It's a, it's a mixed group of people. There may even have been Egyptians who saw what was going on and, and said, we want to follow you. We believe that your God is the true God. And so there were people there who were not Israelites. And even those people had to take the Sabbath day and it had to be a day of rest for them. So it was monotheism, no other God, no idolatry, no idolatry no misusing of God's name and his glory, and a setting apart of the special day that he created. Then you move to the family relationships, and that's the fifth commandment, and that is to honor your father and your mother. And it is, as we know, the first commandment that comes with a promise that your days may be long in the land, and that Yahweh your God, that Yahweh your God is giving you. And there was an expectation not only in your relationship to God, as we saw in the first four, and your relationship to your neighbor, which we'll see in 6 through 10, but also your relationship to your family. In fact, early on, some of the, the first civil laws that are established are drawing lines about what children are allowed to do and not allowed to do, especially as it relates to honoring their parents. You see, Yahweh was establishing a, a structure within society that said the very core of it, the very nucleus of it, is a properly functioning family where you have a husband and a wife, and you have children who honor and obey their parents. And so this is one of the commandments that he gives, and with it comes a promise that if you do do this, that that things will go well with you, that life in general, as a general rule, will go well with you. And now he turns his attention in 6 through 10 to talk about your neighbor you are not allowed thou shalt not murder now this is a word in the hebrew that would have caused death to anybody through carelessness through negligence through intentional harm you're going to see that there are laws established later on that if you kill somebody because you're irresponsible that your life is expected to be taken from you you are not allowed to kill you must preserve and protect life you are not allowed to commit adultery The covenant between husband and wife is to be honored and protected and respected. You are not allowed to steal. You cannot take something that is not yours and abuse the property rights of others. You are not allowed to bear false witness. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment to clarify this, lest there be any misunderstanding. Uh, This is not just saying you cannot lie. Now, you're not allowed to lie either, but that's not exactly what the ninth commandment is saying. The ninth commandment is saying that you are not allowed to engage in a conspiracy against somebody else where you say that you saw something that you really didn't see or heard something you really didn't hear. You're not allowed to be that other witness in the two or three witnesses necessary in order to convict somebody of a crime that could lead to their death. He is saying you are not allowed to testify in court that you saw something or heard something when you didn't, because if you lie, if you say that you saw something, if you bear false witness that somebody's life is on the line and they could literally be killed for it, and he says that is not going to be an acceptable part of the way that this covenant community functions. And then finally, you're not allowed to covet. I love the way that he goes into such detail here. Why? Because I think that you and I have hearts that are prone to coveting. Would you all agree with that? And isn't it wonderful to see that things haven't really changed? He says here that you're not allowed to covet your neighbor's house. Now, in those days, they were all living in tents in the wilderness. There really wasn't that much to covet, but I guess somebody had a much nicer tent than somebody else. I don't know. I've never been camping. But imagine, I guess, that you were camping. (laughs) Um, I know that for some of you, that's a voluntary season of homelessness that you engage in for whatever reason i don't quite understand why but i don't know imagine imagine oh, i know all the, all the oh the whoa enough it's this and yet every time they come back all i hear is oh this happened and this happened and this flooded and then and the bears ate our food and we blew away and the tents ripped up and, then, and i go yeah exactly so you're out there doing that in your tent, and, and then like somebody rolls up in like one of those gleaming airstream, they call them land yachts. I'm like, that's my kind of camping. Anything called a yacht, I'll, I'll consider that. That's something like a stupid illustration, but listen, there was coveting that went on. I don't know what the differences were between the homes that people had in the wilderness, but you understand how God is he is forecasting as to what things are going to be like in the future when you do go into a place where there are homes, and your heart is naturally inclined towards wanting something that someone else has, to thinking they've got it better than you, that you deserve what they have. And you start not only to wish that you had what they had, you start to grumble against God for what you have, and then you put yourself in a very precarious position where your sinful tendency can lead all the way to committing some heinous acts and crimes against those that you're jealous of or envy. And he says, you are not to covet. You are not to covet your neighbor's house. You're not to covet your neighbor's wife. You're not to covet his male servant or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. He opens it up to, to broadly speaking, anything your neighbor has, you're not allowed to covet it. Now, in our day and age, of course, some of these things don't relate directly to us. Most of us don't even have a neighbor who owns an ox. Maybe if we did, we'd find ourselves coveting. We'd be surprised, like, wow, that's why. I mean, you go out in the morning, you're like, that is such an amazing ox. Like, I wish I had one of those. But listen, the ox was used and the donkey was used for different things in the area of farming. It was like having a tractor and having a Jeep. I mean, like you could do an amazing amount of work on the land if you had these animals. They were the big farm equipment of the day. If you had people that served you as servants, uh, as slaves that you owned, you'd get a lot more done. You could farm a lot more land. You could have a lot more produce. You can Im- imagine why there would be some, some jealousy going on, and God says none of it. You cannot covet any of these things. And He reiterates these ten commandments. And He says, they will be for My people the guiding stipulations, the law as it were, for them. For them. The moral law of God that communicates his heart and his nature. They would later be copied down, one for the people and one for God. They would be read publicly. There would be witnesses. God says, I'm going to call heaven and earth to bear witness to this. And for those of you who obey, there will be blessings. And if you don't, there will be curses. And once again, we see the mediation of Moses. Verse 18 through 21, it is Moses who goes back and forth with this. And then in verse 21, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Now we enter into a section here under this idea of covenant on stone, and I understand it's not exactly a perfect fit, but what you're going to see here is the covenant code. Uh, This is the actual unfolding of the covenant, really, within society. It's a bit of a bridge between the two points, and we see that in verses 22 down through 26. And the one thing I want to draw out from you here is something that maybe you haven't noticed before. He says in verse 22, And Yahweh said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, So you're talking to the Israelites and you're telling them, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. So I believe that those 10 commandments, this is before they were written down, these 10 commandments were given by God from heaven in the hearing of the people so that they all knew this came directly from him. There wasn't even a risk that Moses would somehow forget something or misinterpret it. It is God speaking directly to the entire nation when he gives them those laws, when he gives them those commandments. And he reminds them of that here at the very end of the section. And so now we go from here, I'm just going to go straight into Chapter 21 through 24, and we'll call this the covenant in society. It's very interesting that once God has given these 10 commandments, He then goes into more or less case law. He goes into how this functions in society. And He begins by talking about male and female slaves. In chapter 21, verses 1 to 6, He says that if a, a male slave is taken, he can only serve for six years, and in the seventh year, he goes. Because in those days, when you took a Hebrew slave, Uh, They sold themselves into slavery, usually to pay for a debt they couldn't pay, and they would work that off over time, six years. But in the seventh year, the person was free to go. Now, one of the things you could do is you could give that slave a wife, and that wife could perhaps bear children. And what Moses is telling the people is that God is making a law that if the slave decides to marry this woman and they have children, he doesn't have them when he becomes a slave he's not allowed to have them when he leaves unless he wants to stay with his master at which point he becomes a part of that household he comes into that father's house he comes into that patriarch's clan he comes under the permanent protection of that person who had purchased him in the first place what about women well here's how it worked with the women it was a little bit different In those days, as you know, marriages were not necessarily based on romantic attraction, they were often based on what made sense for the families financially. And so what happens is you would make an arrangement with another father, if you had a daughter, and she would go with her dowry into that other father's home. And sometimes, years before she was of marriageable age, she would be taken in and protected by that family. And uh, what Moses is telling the people is that if she comes into a family like that, and the person who brought her in to marry her changes his mind, or if he decides not to have her marry his son like they had originally agreed to, then that girl is not to be sold to somebody else. Uh, She is to remain protected. She has to be fed. She has to be clothed, and she has to be given literally her duty of marriage, It's the Hebrew word for debt. You owe her a debt of marriage. The text says that you have dealt treacherously with her. You brought her in under one pretense, and now you're not going to have her marry anyone. At this point, she's still protected. She's not been given to anybody. There's no sort of sordid sexual sin going on here. But what it says is that she is to be given that right to marry, that duty to marry. So you need to let her go, and she can marry somebody else or her family, is able to redeem her and buy her back. And then he goes on to give other very important laws about how society is to function. Here he says that you're not allowed to strike your father or mother. You're not allowed to kidnap. You're not allowed to curse your family. In fact, he says over and over again that there are all these situations in which somebody might be struck, and if they are struck and they die under certain circumstances, your life is expected of you. And under other circumstances, you pay a fine. And under, under other circumstances, the person essentially goes away without being punished. It all depends on the situation, and he outlines that in detail. So there are these um, laws for people. Secondly, there were laws for property. Beginning in verse 33, he walks through an entire litany of situations in which your property is to be protected. He talks about what happens if something that you own hurts somebody or kills somebody. He talks about what happens if something that you own is stolen by somebody. He even talks about situations, for example, where if somebody steals something, what they have to give you if they're caught. In chapter 22, verse 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and he kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, if we were to just stretch our imaginations a little bit, imagine, if you will, that you stole an ox because you wish you had an ox. You stole an ox because you were guilty of violating the 10th commandment, which is not to covet people's oxen. But then you disobey that rule and you go and you steal an ox, and now you've got an ox. And I mean, I don't know why you steal an ox. Of all the things to steal, <laughs> like an ox, it's hard to hide an ox. I mean, you know, like, are you hiding an ox in here? And you're like, not anyway. But you get caught, because that's what happens when you steal an ox. What happened? You got to pay back five. Well, you don't have five. You don't even have one. How are you going to afford to pay back five? Well, you can't. Now you're utterly ruined financially, and so you have to sell yourself into slavery in order to pay back the debt of five oxen. That's how this slavery thing happened. Don't import your understanding of slavery from what what we know happened in this nation. We need to understand slavery as a very highly regulated, structured, voluntary, or as a punishment, indentured servitude that had lots of rules around it, and it was always temporary, and it always ended in the restoration or redemption of the person. But into that context, you can see the different ways in which God even cares for his people and his society in the way he cares for their property. Carrying on, if you look at the rest of chapter 22, you see that you are also involved in certain practices. We see that in verse 16 of chapter 22. He cares about people, he cares about property, and he cares about practices. This is all under the covenant in society heading. In fact, he says something very interesting here at the very beginning in verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. For father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins." Now, this has been used by some people to suggest that God is instilling within His law the requirement that a woman marry her rapist. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the proper translation here is seduce. What you have here are two people uh, that have voluntarily engaged in this uh, illicit tryst, and it gets discovered. And what happens is, because in those days, a woman's um, honor, if you will, Uh, Was wrapped up in her virginity, this was a protection for her. Uh, This says that if she gets involved with some guy and they end up sleeping together, that he's not allowed to just walk away. In fact, what he has to do is he has to go through the process already that's in place for marrying her. And the only person that can get in between that process is her own father, who may decide, even though it's going to mean dishonor for her and for his family, even though she might never be able to get married he's going to keep her in his own home. She's safer there, and he's going to make that guy pay a fine. It's amazing how all throughout this case law, God shows his direct and specific care for the vulnerable. If you take nothing else away from this section of Exodus, notice his direct and specific and intentional and lavish care for the vulnerable. Obviously, Carrying on in society, you can't have sorcerers, you can't have people sleeping with animals, you can't have people sacrificing to other gods. Those people are all put to death. But notice, you've got to protect the sojourner, the the alien. Verse 22, the widow, the fatherless. verse 25, if you lend money to somebody, you're not allowed to charge interest. God is so concerned that even the person who's in financial distress, if they borrow money from you and you begin to extract from them some unfair uh, return, that when they cry out to God, God will hear them and God will be compassionate to them and He will turn on you. You are not allowed to revile God or curse a ruler, verse 28. You are not to delay in paying what you owe Him in terms of tithes. Verse 31, you consecrate everything to God that He requires of you, that you don't eat the flesh of anything that is torn by beasts in the field. You throw it to the dogs. You're not allowed, verse 1 of chapter 23, to lie in court. You're not allowed to be impartial to poor people when you take them to court, verse 3. You are even to do kind things to your enemy. It's one thing if you see your friend's oxen or his donkey going astray, but maybe you might be tempted to think if it's your enemy's oxen or your enemy's uh, donkey wandering away, it got loose, it's wandering off into the wilderness to get eaten by wild animals, you might be tempted to just kind of watch it go. You might be tempted to kind of like just snicker and say, serves you right, and just watch the donkey walk away. But no, he says, even in this case, with your enemy, you need to show kindness, you need to retrieve that thing and give it back to him. You care for the poor again in verse 6, you're not going to pervert justice that is due to the poor in their lawsuit. Verse 8, you're not to be compromised by bribes. Verse 9, you're not allowed to oppress the sojourner, the aliens, the ones who are not Israelites. Why? Verse 9, because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Your empathy should come through. You know what it's like to be a slave. You know what it's like to be oppressed. Therefore, you don't do that to others. Several laws about the Sabbath are then given in chapter 23, verse 10. More specifically, look at verse 14. He talks about the specific feasts they were to keep. There was the feast of unleavened bread, verse 15. There is the feast of harvest, verse 16. That was really the first fruits that that come in. And then there was the feast of the full harvest, the ingathering these are three times a year that all of your males appear before Yahweh God. They give him the honor for everything that he has allowed them to produce. He says, in that time that you do not offer anything that is leavened, you merely bring the blood of the sacrifice, you bring the best of your first fruits. And then he wraps this up with a very important statement in verse 19, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, I know you all know what that means, so I don't mean to insult you by trying to define that. Truthfully, I haven't got any idea what that means. Um, I've read, I think, an adequate amount. I think I've, I've done my duty in terms of research on this. There seems to be widespread um, disagreement over what this means in various theories. The simplest way to look at it in the context—remember, your context is critical— Uh, In the context of this, it's being written to people at that time entering into the land of Canaan in the context of feasts and festivals, and so I think the best understanding of this is that it was a pagan practice that was um, common in in the festivals to the false gods, and and Yahweh is saying, don't engage in that. Don't do anything that would remind you of the sort of festivals that were uh, celebrating false gods. Now, in verse 20 of chapter 23, really through the end of 24, we have a little bit of shift of focus here. And I'm just going to touch on this before we conclude, but this is so fascinating. I want you to see Christ. Look at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared pay careful attention to Him and obey His voice. Do not rebel against Him, for He will not pardon your transgression, for My name is in Him. Yahweh says, I am in Him. He is in Me. He has the power to redeem. Uh, This is once again a a reference to the the pre-incarnate Christ. He is the One who is with them. His angel, His messenger, His sent One goes forth. We've seen Him earlier called the the angel of Yahweh. Yahweh. He is the messenger of the Lord's army. He is the one who will fight your battles and allow you to serve Yahweh, your God. He tells them over and over again that they will go into this land and they will secure it. And even in God's wisdom, I love how he says in verse 29 of chapter 23, I will not drive out all these foreign nations from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I'll drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Isn't that gracious of the Lord? He says, even though there's two million of you, you're not enough to take over all the land I'm going to give you, so I'm going to give it to you in phases. And as you grow as a people, I'm going to give you a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more, so you don't rush in and take over everything, and then you're not populous enough to care for it. He's going to care for them every step of the way. And then he says, you must remember, you shall make no covenant with those people who are there, or their gods. And then, in chapter 24, this covenant is once again confirmed. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders of Israel, they are the ones that are called together. And God writes down these words through Moses in a book, verse 4. All the words of Yahweh were written down so that there would be a record of what they had agreed to. And a sacrifice is made, an offering before Yahweh, and verse 7, he, being Moses, took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. This was all understood. This was the normal pattern. When the king and the people entered into an agreement, his representative would therefore stand in front of them, and he would, he would read out the agreement so that the people knew what to expect of their king and what their king expected of them. We spent a lot of time focusing on what the king expects of them, but just bear this in mind. The Israelite people, during their time of wilderness wanderings, will on more than one occasion literally stand up and demand that God fulfill His covenant to them. Why are we perishing? Why is our enemy surrounding us? Why are we failing? You owe it to us to protect us because you said you would when you entered into the covenant. That's how binding this covenant is. And we're going to see that unfold in the rest of the book of Exodus. But here it is, read for them, confirmed, stone copies are made. Chapter 24, verse 12, Yahweh said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. In the old days, you didn't write on stone. In the old days, you wrote on clay when it was soft, and then you fired it up, and then it became a tablet. And God says, I'm going to give you something stone that I've written with my own finger, and I'm going to give you two copies, one for you, one for me, all ten commandments written on both. And the one copy was to go where the people could see it every day where they came in to worship, and the other was to be kept with the king who made the treaty. And the irony of this is that God keeps both, because God is both the one who made the treaty and the king of the people who are making the treaty with him. You see, it's all around him. He is the one who made it. He is the one who's going to cause his people to keep it. But this section wraps up with this very important statement. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of Yahweh dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now, the appearance of the glory of Yahweh was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. It's like the mountain was on fire. It was just—it was like it was going to incinerate anything that was up there. The people look up and say, there's no hope that he's going to survive this. And God, out of that, calls Moses up. And Moses enters into the cloud, and he went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses is going to be up there hearing from the Lord the details of what is going to be required in order for him to manifest his presence with them. Moses will be up there 40 days and 40 nights. We're going to fast forward that to seven days and we'll cover it next week. But we're going to see what he learned up there when we gather together again and talk about what it means for God to have His presence with His people. But before we do that, we need to see Christ in this. How is this fulfilled? In Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 to 29, just listen. Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And He said, take, eat, this is my body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my body. Blood of the covenant. Same words used by Moses. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, in the days of Moses, he took some of the blood and he threw it against the mountain. And he took some of the blood and he threw it against the people. And Jesus is saying, that was my blood. That was looking forward to my blood of the covenant. I am the one being sacrificed for you. I tell you, I will not eat again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That was the context in Jesus' day. What about in the early church? What did preachers do with this text? Did preachers in the early church in the first century to their Greek and Gentile hearers go back into the Old Covenant and try to explain to them with detail every single facet of Old Testament history? Did they spend all their time trying to make sure they fully understood the specific nature of the Old Covenant and how it related? Or did they go back and say, let me show you what all of that was pointing to. Let me show you the fulfillment of Exodus. What was Exodus pointing to? Why does it matter? What's the point? The answer is that they did that. They wanted you to see it. And in one of the Earliest sermons that we have in the Bible, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 9, verses 11 through 22. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, he entered once and for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies from the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our consciences from dead works to serve the living God Verse 22, indeed, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And then, later on in the same sermon, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. Who is he speaking about there? These children of Israel at Mount Sinai. He's reaching back to that moment and he is causing his readers to to think about what it was like for those people. And he says to them, by the grace of God and the mercies of Christ, that's not you today. He says to them, in order to put them in their proper context, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who's enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator, the better Moses, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood not of bulls and goats, but of his own blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And then that sermon, wrapping up in a way that could never be said better. The benediction, and may it be ours as we wrap up our time together in God's word this morning. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.